Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast downloaded over three-quarters of a million times in over 160 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage, coming to you from Warradandi country. This is episode 266 of the Australian Hiker Podcast, and in this week's episode, we talk about Cape to Cape, reality versus expectations. We hope you enjoy. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice, so that each episode is available as soon as it's published, and if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. In this podcast episode, we discuss our pre-trip expectations for the Western Australian Cape to Cape Walk and compare them to the reality of the trip itself. This was very much a trip or two halves, so we got more of an experience than we expected. In this episode, we discuss how the trip panned out and make some recommendations that will help you get the best out of this experience if you're looking at doing it. Now, as I mentioned, this trip was very much a trip of two halves in that we had originally planned to head over there in April of 2023 and do the trip all in one go. Due to illness, we ended up getting off trail after two and a half days, having completed a third of the track. Uh, logistically, we ended up doing two different things each time we went over there and visited. And now that we've completed the trip, uh, we can now talk about things that might make it helpful for you if you're looking at doing this trip itself. Now, the first thing is transport. When we originally went over there, we did this using public transport, and this is very much a trip of planes, trains, and automobiles. We live in Canberra, uh, in the Australian Capital Territory, uh, and we got a direct flight from Canberra to Perth on Thursday night, landed in Perth, and went to our hotel. And the hotel we picked was in the city, and it was close to the Perth train station, which is where we needed to be the next morning. Friday morning, we caught the train from Perth down to Bunbury, and then from Bunbury, we caught the bus down to Dunsborough. Once we got into Dunsborough, we then got a taxi out to the trailhead at Cape Naturalist Lighthouse. So as I mentioned, planes, trains, and automobiles. So that was really for the first part of the trip itself. We then returned back to do this trip in August of 2023, so after a few months gap. And this time we were a bit more limited on time and we didn't want to take or rely on public transport. Instead, we did the same thing. We got a plane into Perth. We picked up a hire car at the airport uh, and then drove down to Gracetown, which is where we left the track the first time, and had lunch at Gracie's General Store, and then I started heading off and walking south. Now, the fact that Jill had a car, um, what she ended up doing was going to Prevelli, which is where we were staying that night, dropped the car off, picked up a set of keys for the accommodation, and then proceeded to walk northward towards me, uh, with the intent of meeting somewhere roughly in the middle, depending on 
on where that happened to be. Yeah, so um, I do part of each day twice, <laughs> head north, meet Tim, turn around, head south. And the bonus with that is that Jill gets to see admittedly the same landscape but from a different angle and, and getting different views and it gives her a chance to work out which is the best way to walk. Is it better off heading south or is it better off heading north? Now, for me, who did this entire trip heading southwards, I tend to think about what's going on at the time, and I, I, I had the view that heading southward was the better, better option. And Jill's view, having done bits of it, uh, the same track twice, both north and south, her view was? Head south. Yeah. <laughs> it's just uh, a different kind of perspective that you get. You, you do feel that you're taking in a lot more like it's it's kind of weird I know it's the same but I generally felt as I was heading south I got a better view of where I was going and a, a fuller picture of the landscape. Now if you talk to a number of people or read a number of blogs people do say head south because you have the sun in your eyes less of the time as you're walking and while that may be a consideration for us Really, when you think about it, when you look at the trail, you look at the signage, the signage has really been designed from north to south. If you go to Cape Naturalist, there's a very obvious, I will say, and bigger trailhead, whereas the trailhead in the south at uh, Cape Lewin Lighthouse is very small and minimal. Yeah, and I'd agree with that because as I was heading north, sometimes the trail wasn't as obvious and the marking wasn't as obvious. But then you'd turn around and you go, I'm not even sure why I even thought it was, you know, hard to follow at a particular point because it was really, really clear. So, yeah, it has been designed as a southbound trail uh, and the signage just certainly uh, makes uh, confirms that as well. Now, campsites. There's a number of different accommodation options on this trail. Really for us, the first two nights, which was at Mount Duckworth and then at Moses Rocks, were walk-in campsites. These were campsites that you couldn't drive into. Uh, you, ha- you pretty much had to walk in there. They had a water tank, a toilet and a couple of picnic tables at each campsite and you just put your tent up on bare ground basically. Mount Duckworth, there were a couple of really good sites and the rest of them varied. I think there was a bit of a slope on most of the other sites. Yeah, there was. So when we got into Mount Duckworth on the first night, uh, there was already a couple there and they'd picked the best site, which was dead flat, uh, off by itself, had its own picnic table and it was really quite good. We, I think, picked the second best site, which was almost as good, not quite, still had its own picnic table, was relatively flat, protected by trees, but it was closer to the other campsites. So again, if you've got the time and there's got, you've got plenty of choice, don't just pick the first site you see. Have a wander around, have a look and see what's flat. With, you, know, you don't want to be right next to the toilets, but you don't want to be miles away either. But pick something that you're happy with. From there, we go into holiday parks. So uh, the holiday parks we stayed at were at Hamlin Bay and at... Prevelli. Prevelli. And these ones you could either just get a campground, uh, you put somewhere to pitch your tent and you, you wander off to the, the nearby toilets or you could book a cabin of some sort. And we, we chose to book a cabin because A, we had a car with us, which is not really that important, but it, it meant that you know at the end of the day we could just drive there, park next to the cabin, uh, have a nice warm shower, sleep in, a, in a, a warm bed, have a cup of tea, it's nice and easy. But really the choice of choice is yours, you know, whether you choose a, to camp in a tent or to camp in a cabin. 
Yeah, the tricky thing is that at uh, some of the the uh, holiday parks, if you like, there's a minimum of a two night stay. At one of them, there was a two night stay on weekends, um, not so much uh, during the week. So Prevelli was a two night stay. Hamlin Bay, uh, we we could stay there one night. We decided to stay an extra night and. Uh, we ended up getting that as a, a discount and then we got a third night, which, which was free. So that was kind of nice. Um, so, you know, think about what's going to work for you and, you know, organise it. I understand that the tent sites, uh, the camping sites, there wasn't a, a two-night commitment. So you could stay there for um, one one night. Now, Jill mentioned Hamlin Bay with a special deal and that's because pretty much it was the middle of winter and <laughs> I think there were very few people. We, I think we were one of the only people staying in that campsite or that area for that night. I think I, can't, um, I counted three cars. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it's a big – it's a big camping area. Yeah, yeah, so it ended up being three nights for the price of two and the second night was discounted anyway. But the reason we decided to do that, because Jill had the ability to have the car, we stayed there the first night when we when we walked in or I walked in. The second night was basically at the end of the trip and it was either staying in, in Augusta or we thought it was just as easy to leave everything there, not have to pack up the gear. So Jill had the car down in Augusta. Uh, she picked me up, we had dinner in Augusta, and then we headed back to Camlin Bay and it just made it easy for the sake of a short, short drive. Yeah, and it was a relatively short drive and, and that's the other thing about um, the interconnecting roads between these sort of um, uh, stops at the end of each day. It's very easy, very short distances Um you know, anywhere between 15 and 20 kilometres-ish. And so, you know, with the car, it meant that I could go to the other end of the day's trail and um, not miss, miss too much of the, the walking. Now, the third night we decided to say we'd had actually booked an additional night just in case we didn't finish the track in time. So we had a bit of leeway and we thought, right, we either needed to stay in Perth for that extra night or we stayed in we stayed in uh, somewhere south and we thought we might as well just stay that extra night because it was free. Uh, the only disadvantage really for that particular site is there was no internet signal and very poor phone signal. So if you were trying to do work or log on to do something on the internet, you were pretty limited with what you could do. But otherwise, a really good site, really good uh, facilities, and you're quite happy just to sort of sit there and watch TV, have a rest, do whatever you needed to do. And, yeah, we we ended up driving back to Augusta the next day to take some photos of the Cape Lewin Lighthouse in the actual daylight rather than the night timers, which is when we turned up the last time. And the internet connection really, phone connection, internet connection is really only about two kilometres or so away. So once once you get up the road a little bit, um, you've still got connection. Now, the other site we haven't talked about is Conto. Now, Conto sort of falls between the on-trail campgrounds and the holiday parks. Conto is very much a camping site, but it caters for people in tents that are walking in. We stayed in a campsite where we could park our car uh, and we had a picnic table and we also walked in and set up our tent. And I think it also catered for caravans and camper vans as well in different areas. Yeah, it does. It has a range of uh, different sections depending on what your accommodation was going to be. The only thing it doesn't 
cater for is essentially big caravans and if you like the the mobile home kind of thing but yeah tents uh camper vans small tents big tents and we camped very close to the trail uh it was about a 50 meter walk from the trail to the trail the next day so it it was quite easy and again no one around in the section that we uh, camped in and I think from memory, the prices weren't particularly expensive. So yeah, it wasn't overly expensive. Uh, and we also had a tap that was close to us. In every campsite or campground, they did actually recommend filtering or boiling the water because the water was either boil water or rainwater and they're just playing it playing it safe. Uh, so with Conto, we actually had a tap. It was probably only about 10 or 12 metres from where we were put the tent up. Uh, so we went over there, filled our gravity water filter up uh, and filled our bladders up from that. Now, a word of warning on this one that, we, you know, for the sake of walking 10 metres, we turned around and there were birds on the, on the picnic table looking to see what they could, they could uh, snatch while we went, where our backs were turned. Uh, and this is a comment I make with Mount Duckworth as well, uh, that there are birds there that if you walk too far away, they'll be into the food if you leave anything sitting open on the table. I think they were looking for colourful things to take into their nets, into their nests. One of the things I'd say about Conto um, is that when you book, you pay and you book, uh, it's really on a first-come, first-served basis. So in many of the sections, you can't select an actual site until you're there. So um, that didn't worry us too much. Uh, There wasn't anybody there in the area that we were camping in, so had the pick of the sites. And I think when we'd actually looked at you go online, you can see what the sites are. And I think we'd, we'd tentatively booked site five and thought that was good. It's close to the toilets, close to the trail. Then we actually got out there and we looked around and we decided seven, which was just across, was actually a good option. Uh, uh, it was you know slightly further from the toilet, but we just liked the look of it. Uh, site number nine, I think it was, which was basically right next to the trail, would have been really good, except we noticed people virtually walking through the middle of it uh, that were camping up in the uh, the campers area, uh, and admittedly there was no one there. But I think it would be you'd be open to having people wandering past your tent if you're a, a late sleeper. Um, yeah, and I think also we were there and it was very very quiet. So if you're there in a busy time and you're selecting your site, then the options are going to be a little bit more limited, and you need to basically make some of those choices. Either get into site early and make your selection or you just take whatever you can when you get there. Now there are a few other walk-in campsites we haven't talked about. There was actually one about 1.2 kilometres on from Conto uh, but it was out of action and when I walked past there was a sign up saying area closed due to fire damage and you could see they were working on building new construction and getting it back into play again. But realistically, given the way they're going, it may not be for another couple of months and then hiking season's over when you hit the summer. And so for next year, I think it'll be in play. There was also another site called De Penny, uh, which is halfway between Hamlin Bay and Cape Lewin Lighthouse. That wasn't available to us the first time we came through. It, it, it was closed due to fire, but it appears it's back open again. So if you don't want such a long day, which we'll talk about in a moment, it's a good option to break that last day up into two smaller pieces. Now, the trail itself consists of natural trail tread, management road, 
beach walking on very soft sand and rock platform with the occasional timber and mesh trail uh, through some sections. The biggest thing for me on this trip was the sand. So I'm used to walking on beaches in New South Wales where you can always get a firm piece of sand. You have the wet stuff down where the water comes up, you get the really soft stuff up the top, and in between somewhere is a hard packed area of sand. A reasonably yeah. packed area of sand, yeah. Uh, yeah, that really doesn't feel like you're having to put any extra effort into it. But Western Australia, the sand is soft pretty much wherever you go. Um, and there were some exceptions here and there, but the, the consistently it was soft sand. And the management road was soft sand as well. So when you're walking off the beach, up through the management roads, lots of soft sand, and that was really slowing you down. Or the sand dunes. Yeah, or the sand dunes. That was, that was a lot of fun, going up and down those. We had, uh, on the second last day when we walked from Conto through to Hamlin Bay, we came across a six-and-a-half-kilometre beach walk, which Jill got to do twice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was uh, the hazard on that beach was the four-wheel drive. There were tens of four-wheel drives, people coming in and surfing, the occasional fishermen. At one point, I think I counted around 40 with all of the activities that were going on and families and picnics and swimming and surfing. And yes, it was, um, uh, it was, it was interesting walking that six and a half kilometers through all of that, which is just mind blowing for me. I just didn't expect that at all. Uh, but certainly with Western Australia, they very much into shared parks. So in New South Wales, you don't get four-wheel drives running on management roads. There's a limit. They stop you at a certain point, then you're on foot. West Australia, pretty much if you can walk most places, you can probably drive there. There are some areas that are closed off, but certainly there's a lot of access down to beach for four-wheel drives. Now, one of the bonuses of having those vehicles... If you can call it that, yeah. Yeah. One of the bonuses of these vehicles, apart from, you know, it, you had to watch out, you didn't get run over if you weren't paying attention, but certainly the, the four-wheel drives tended to pack the sand down. So we found on that walk down the beach towards Hamlin Bay that if we walked in the shallower four-wheel drive tracks, it had compacted the sand and it was a bit firmer and a bit easier to walk. Yeah, and it took me a while to work that out and one of the locals actually made that comment uh, as I asked thinking, gee, have I gone too far? Have I gone not far enough? He gave me a few directions and, and then said, oh, you know, walk in the tracks. Uh, it's a little bit easier. And it was. Yeah, but still not easy by any means. As far as the four-wheel drive management roads are concerned, we have some instances where, particularly on the weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays when everyone's out and about recreating, that we the roads were so narrow that we had to actually step off into the bush for the four-wheel drives to get past. Wasn't that often, uh, but, yeah, if you're on a management road and you had thick bush up into the uh, narrow road, you had to pay attention and work out where you were going to go if a four-wheel drive did come past, which did happen from time to time. And it's open enough that you can see them coming and you can also hear them. So I don't think it was unsafe in any way and they don't move that fast. It, it is just a little bit of an inconvenience that you have to be thinking about, I'm going to have to step off the trail at this minute, they're approaching, where's the best spot? Uh, and there were a couple of times when I think we politely made them wait 
not too often, but, you know, we weren't being obstructive, but there really wasn't anywhere to step off. So we had to walk a little bit further up and, you know, they were quite happy to slowly approach on the basis that we were going to step off soon. The other thing I'd say with this trip as well was every so often I had some things I can only describe as weird. I had one day where I was walking on Management Road and then I thought, okay, we're going back onto single track trail again. And I did that for 40 or 50 metres, then back out onto the Management Road. (laughs) And there was no particular reason. It was like, okay, we'll we'll make make things easy, put people back on single track trail again. But I was almost thinking, oh, do I just walk up the hill? Because I can see that's where I'm likely to be going. So there was a to make it interesting. That's it, what it, it was it about. Does. It was just it was weird. I'm thinking, why am I walking along the inside of this fence line rather than the, on the other side? So it was just strange. The other sort of surface that I had to walk across, particularly on the last day, was on rock platforms, and we had a few rock platforms here and there, but it was the last day where the bulk of them were. And the first one that I really came across. You get down there, you have no choice. The only thing you can do is turn around, walk back up the hill and try and find a management road through. And it had this lovely little warning sign saying, warning blowholes, please pay attention. (laughs) You were saying this. And there was almost, there was this series of honeycomb rock uh, platform uh, that every so often you'd get this shoot of water and air coming up. Now, it wasn't a problem on the day I did it. But if there had been really big seas, that would have been quite a lot of water and power coming through those, and I wouldn't have wanted to be walking along there. So a comment I would make here is, if you have a look at the write-up of this walk, there's a couple of photos every so often where there's been sandbanks that have been chopped away. Instead of being a gradual slope down to the beach, it's almost like a flat face where large seas have come in and just taken some of the sandbank. And even on one day when I left Hamlin Bay, I found that uh, I came onto the first beach fairly shortly. I could see the waves coming up probably within four to five metres of the sandbanks, the sand dunes, and the tide was actually going out and it had been for a little while. So on a high tide and on big seas pushing or blowing into the, the beach, there's a good chance you may not be able to actually access some of those beaches. So I think uh, we'll talk about this more specifically later on. If there are big storms, you may find that you have to delay or look for alternate routes inland on some of the management roads if they exist. It's a very weather-prone trail. It is. Now, water on trail, there are rainwater tanks at, at, at the natural campsite. So anywhere there's a designated campsite, there are there is rainwater. Uh, I don't think they actually top up the tanks. It is, it is rain, so it means they get filled up quite well in wintertime, and they're quite large tanks, so they look like about 5,000-litre tanks, which means they last quite a way into summer. Uh, but certainly if you, you're hiking in the cooler months of the year, you can pretty much guarantee there'll be water there. There are water, obviously, at the campgrounds uh, as you come into those. Uh, so water was never really an issue, and we did cross some creeks and small rivers uh, that weren't just brackish, that were definitely fresh water. So if you had a filter, you could also use those as well. So water was never really an issue in April or certainly in August when we did it. It came through a second time. And as we mentioned, there were taps at Conto as well, but again, just needed to fill them. Mobile reception on trail was fairly intermittent. Uh, some days, uh, particularly in towards the south around that Hamlin Bay area, was a bit weak. But certainly there were times once I left Hamlin Bay and went up the 
the steepest hill of the whole trip, which was about 150, 200 metres, uh, there was good signal there. But that, but by that stage, Jill had already started walking and she had lost signal at her end of the trail. So there was good a good chance to get signal every so often along the trail, but there were certainly dead patches as well. And that's with the Telstra network, which is obviously going to have the best uh, signal that you're going to pick up. Internet access was probably a bit worse. Sometimes you just couldn't get that. But I found that quite often when I did have signal or I was at a high point, I'd turn on my phone uh, and a batch of messages would come through, a batch of emails would come through. So, uh, But just don't rely on it being on in case of an emergency. Scenery-wise, really you're looking at a lot of coastal heathland, uh, beach walking, rock walking, and there are some sections of forest walking as well. And for me, the sections with the forest were probably the favourite. I had two really long beach walks on this, the, the second last and last day. One was six and a half kilometres, one was seven and a half kilometres, and there were some other short walks thrown in there as well. And it would have been nice on those really long walks to, is to come inland walk along the, the cliff line for a kilometre or so, then go back down again, uh, just to break it up and give a bit of variety. My favourite was the taller heathland, and uh, the, particularly down south. There's some really, really lovely sections that aren't as exposed, and so a bit more variety, and also I think just a, a little bit more pleasant walking. Now, the first time we did this was April. There were a few things out in flower, but not many. The second time we came through was August, so we were starting to head into spring, and the amount of flowering plants was a bit more noticeable. But I think you know, into September, mid to late September, was when you'd really hit the peak of the wildflowers, and that would be the, certainly the pick in relation to flowering plants. But then you're also starting to pick up increased heat as well. Because when we did this walk the second time, it was actually quite pleasant. Uh, I think 12 to 15 degrees. Uh, we had to have more. It was also a rainier part of the year as well. But we were lucky. Uh, in the second time we visited, we were hiking for four days. No rainfall at all, uh, even though the original forecast was for rain the last two days. We ended up getting rain the day after we finished. I think it's going to be a spectacular spring season. You could see... Lots of plants were in bud and uh, about to sprout. So over the next few weeks or so, uh, I think it's going to be absolutely beautiful along this trail. Animal and bird life was a bit varied. There was lots of birds, whether we saw them or not, all the way along the trail. So bird life was pretty constant, apart from on the beaches themselves. Although, again, we had uh, a few different species of plovers wandering around the beaches. Uh, as we were walking past, the odd seagull as well, but certainly inland there was a lot of bird life around. Animal life was pretty limited. Uh, the first time we did the walk uh, in April, we had one dugite, which is one of the Western Australian snakes, that was sunning itself on the middle of the trail, uh, and that shot off pretty quickly as we approached. Uh, and I'm sure there were other snakes around, but we didn't see any others. We saw some kangaroos, one on trail and some towards Conto campground. Uh, but again, not, of, not a lot of other animal life that we were able to pick up. It was certainly delighted, apart from the few lizards here and there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, was a, a little bit limited, uh, partly possibly because of the time of day that we tended to be walking, uh, but also perhaps uh, the time of the year as well. 
Now, inlet crossings, and this is the thing that often worries most people, and it was our biggest concern as we went over. So the Margaret River mouth crossing is one of these things. There is a diversion in place if you need it, and that's what we ended up doing was taking the diversion. Had we have completed the trip in April, the river mouth was closed and we could have done a beach walk and saved ourselves about four kilometres of walking. We, um, uh, we basically we found a Facebook page that does regular updates uh, and looking at the most recent update, the river mouth opened probably about two weeks before our second visit uh, and there had been a lot of rain the week or two beforehand because July really is one of the wettest months of the year. And we thought uh, it's, you know, if you get down there, pretty much you've got to uh, virtually turn around and try and find your way back out. And, you, you know, you end up having a, a fairly extensive detour back again. So we made the decisions to do the detour. And when Jill dropped the car off uh, into Prevalley that night, she talked to people and they said, yeah, it's pretty, it's moving pretty rapidly. You need to be a strong swimmer. Uh, they recommend that we do the detour. So that just reinforced what we did. So I would say two things um, about all of that. The, the first one is what open and closed means. So closed means you can walk it. Open means there's water coming through. So you've got to get your head into that kind of language. Otherwise, you, you will get a bit mixed up. The detour is probably boring at, you know, a fair amount of the way, but it is much safer. So, you know, don't take any risks. Apparently, you can get a canoe, organise a canoe um, across the, uh, the river mouth. Uh, we didn't know that until afterwards, but still you have to organise that beforehand. And I would also assume that if it's pretty bad, even a canoe's not going to make it across. The kayaks were basically being provided by the uh, for the people doing self-supported walks by one of the tour companies, and I don't know whether they just let them out or let random people use them. So that would be something to contact and see if that's a, a service they do offer. There were a couple of other small inlets that required you getting wet feet. There really was no other choice, but yeah, they were only sort of ankle deep. But it means you did. You know, I had one inlet on Red Bank, I think it is, beach. Yeah. And I ended up almost sinking down to knee depth. It was almost like quicksand in one area. And that's just one of the things you have to deal with. It looked pretty impressive in <laughs> terms of ankle depth water until you f- fell into the hole. That was <laughs> That was entertaining. Um, and, and as I said, they, it was that, like you went looking for it. To yeah. be honest, when you have a look at the video, it was like I, I think you can get out now. Yeah. But he just kept going. Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to work out an easy way to go through because there were a lot of people crossing at one particular point. And as I said, there were a couple of other smaller ones. Uh, but yeah, I had I've crossed you know, even three weeks earlier. Uh, it would have been after walk along the beach on sand and not get wet feet at the Margaret River anyway. And, and the thing about the the crossings is that it's dependent on the rain that happens upstream. So that's the other thing uh, to remember. So the it might not have been local rainfall, but, you know, rainfall 10, 15, maybe 20 kilometres away was enough to make the Margaret River uh, uncrossable. 
but have a look at the Facebook page on a regular basis. As I said, you know, if I had, even if we had have done this a week before, we would have been right. And all, all of a sudden, they showed the the, the sand breaking through, and and, uh, and there was a huge amount of water pouring out. So, and I think possibly if we had have done it a few days later, we would have been okay as well. So, I must admit, this morning, as I before I recorded this podcast, I had a look online, and someone did cross it, but they ended up as chest depth water at one point crossing. So again. If you're not a strong swimmer or you're not used to inland crossing, that could be a bit of a worry. But carry a tide chart just in case uh, and try and cross at low tide. Don't try and cross it at high tide if you are going to choose to cross. Now, when to walk. And really, there is no right answer here. Uh, If you want wildflowers, you're obviously crossing in late August through to about late September, early October. Uh, Whale season is different again. If you want to avoid Easter, the first time we did it, it was Easter time, uh, and that uh, had a few logistical issues for us there. So we we originally were thinking about travelling north, and we couldn't do because the accommodation was booked up if we travelled in that direction. But by flipping it around and travelling south, all of a sudden the accommodation opened up. So it's really a matter of do you want the holidays and everyone that comes with it, or do you want a bit more privacy? And, And we certainly do prefer the cooler weather. In April, the first day when we left Cape Naturalist Lighthouse, we were swamped by flies. Now, Jill had her fly, her fly net to put over her head. I didn't because I rarely ever do take it, and that was a mistake. So I ended up putting my buff over my face and my, my nose and mouth just so I wasn't eating flies. There were that many of them. The only other option is to firmly close my mouth, and you know, even then you'd inhale flies through your nose. They were that bad. So the buff made a big difference. I think my fly count was about four. I don't think I got to five, but maybe I stopped counting after that on the whole trip. So that wasn't too bad. I got to one and a half, one which I swallowed and one which I, I half swallowed and managed to spit out. So, uh, yeah, it's not, it, that disappeared after the, the first day. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure what happened there. Uh, but certainly walking in the warm months, carry a fly net. And just on the you know best time of the year, when we were at Hamlin Bay, there is a boat launching uh, ramp and car park and uh, beach visitor car park uh, that's all bitumen and it is huge, absolutely monstrous. That's an indicator, I think, of how popular the site is. Uh, you know, it's a holiday destination. So those holiday times are going to be absolutely peak times and uh, you may or may not like that. Uh, if you don't like that, then pick another time. But have a look at the options. Have a look at the weather. Again, in our write-up, we talk about when the wettest and driest months of the year are. We provide temperatures for uh, summer and winter to give you a good indication. Uh, it's typically not as hot as Perth is because it's on right on the coast, uh, but th- that's a generalisation. You can get some hot days. So it's a matter of picking what suits you and avoiding the crowds or picking the wildflowers, and wildflower season is really popular. So That's right. I, I would avoid late spring, summer, possibly early autumn. Yeah, yeah. And I know, I know for us in April it was actually quite warm. I don't think it got to 30 degrees, but it felt pretty hot and it was a bit draining as well. Well, it's very exposed and there were some sun traps for long periods of time. So it, it felt hotter than I think it probably was. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, there is a guidebook for this walk, and I think there's actually a couple of guidebooks, but there's there's one produced by a local Western Australian hiker who goes by the name Walking 2 by 2 uh, and it's a quite a it's, a it's a tiny little guidebook. It actually fits into a Ziploc sandwich bag. That's how small it is, and it doesn't weigh a lot, but it gives you all the details you need. So Jill actually carried that with her. I must admit, I tend to use the Far Out app, uh, but you know, if the phone dies, then you've got nothing. Uh, but the, the signage is pretty good. But the guidebook is quite handy, and we did bring us on the walk that it is so small. I use the Far Out app too, and I think. You no, know, both, both were quite good. And you're not dependent on the internet signal for the app, so you could actually use it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but having said that, as again, if the phone dies, there goes your mapping source. So that's the issue with any, electro- any piece of electronics. Now, things to make the trip better. Uh, as, we said, as we mentioned, if you're hiking in the hotter months, bring a fly net. If you're hot, hiking in the hotter months, long pants and long sleeves, otherwise you'll get fried in the sun. Uh, and flies, again, are going to be just that much more annoying. Uh, so in the cooler months, uh, make sure you uh, bring your rain gear. Uh, there can be rain at any time of the year, but I think uh, in February uh, the rain forecast is for three days a month of rain, whereas I think in July it was 19 days a month of rain. So you, know, you certainly want to come catered for that. And also the weather's going to be cooler as well. So you're going to have to maybe maybe carry a warmer sleeping bag and warmer clothing just to make sure you cater for those sort of conditions. And I didn't take my warm sleeping bag. I probably should have. So uh, I, I was a bit cold at night, uh, which, you know... Um, one night we had to swap bags and and uh, I took Tim's bag, who for some reason ended up with a much warmer bag than the one I took. I don't know how that happened. But, you know, these, these things happen. I survived. It's okay. And I must admit, you know, when we were using the sleeping bags, I found there were a bit, it was a bit warm anyway, so giving, getting a lighter weight sleeping bag was fine for me and giving Jill my heavier weight bag was good for her as well. You're very noble. I am. This trip can be done in a whole range of different ways. You can do it end-to-end, you can do it as sections, you could do it supported, uh, you you know. So pretty much you can decide how you want to do it, how long you want to take. If you're going to do it end-to-end, my suggestion would be seven days. I, I think six days is full-on, particularly for some of those longer uh, days and uh, the extent of the beach walking involved. So, you know, seven days I think is probably for most people a, a good option. And I think particularly it's that last day. I mean, you know, you can get away with the other days quite easily, but I think to do the 20, just on 24, just on 25 kilometres the last day. Most of um, which is on a beach. <laughs> yeah, on, on soft sand, it's a hard slog. And Jill actually, when I actually caught up to Jill on that last day, she said she had a mother and son couple go past and she said they'd look wrecked. Um, and, and, you know, they they still had 11 kilometres to go. And, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, oh, it's, that's not going to be fun. Yeah. So and a few sand dunes and a few beaches, not many beaches, but mostly sand dunes. One thing we didn't do uh, on this trip, the first time we started off in Dunsborough and we, we got off the bus, we basically walked 
10 metres across the road to the outdoor store and I picked up the gas canister that I'd actually booked prior to the trip. Uh, and the guy was really helpful. He said, look, if by some chance you get in late and there's no one there, he'll arrange to leave it somewhere for me so that I could, I could pick it up. So that was actually quite good. Uh, but the second time we didn't have time to get our gas canister in Perth. We got down south and didn't even think about the gas. We thought I would be able to pick it up pretty much anywhere, which wasn't the case. We should have actually picked up a gas canister in Dunsborough again or Augusta at the other end if we had been going the other way. Now, we were lucky. When we were checking out of Prevelli, we stopped into the uh, the office, uh, said, yeah, sell hiking gas cylinders because they had a, a small general store there. They said no. And one of the staff members said, look, they've got one that's just about empty, but we were welcome to it. And it was one of the really big canisters. We got a meal out of it, which was all we needed to do, and we probably would have got maybe another meal out of it. Uh, because, you know, you could you could shake it; and it was just about empty, but it was enough to keep us going. So that worked really well. Yeah, and they gave us that for free. So uh, that's the other thing I'd say about uh, this hike: people are very friendly, they're very supportive, they're very welcoming, and uh, you know, maybe maybe that's what. West Australians are, are like normally, um, but it is quite nice to uh, occasionally go into a store, occasionally go into a camping area and, and be welcomed. Now, one other comment I would make is in the write-up, which has taken me a couple of weeks to get organised, I've put as many resource links as we possibly can. So want to book a campsite or a campground, the links are there. Uh, want to look at what's going to make the trip better, the suggestions are there. So have a look at that. There's a lot of information there, including a lot of photos. And as per usual, as we've been doing the last couple of years, a video a photo slideshow, uh, which takes you from start to finish over the whole trip. So it'll give you an indication about what you can expect to see. Uh, maybe the flowers won't be out depending on what time you go, but it'll give you an indication of the landscape and what's what's the, the terrain is looking like. Okay, so final question is, would we do this again? Now, I'm one of these people that tend not to do the same walks twice. There's just too many walks to do. Uh, but in this case here, I think it's certainly worthwhile doing. And I think if I was going to do it again, I'd do it from Augusta and head north just to see what it was like. Look, I really enjoyed the hike and all things equal, I possibly would do it again. I just have so many other hikes that I want to do. So maybe if I get through that list, then... Uh, I would consider doing this one again. And it was certainly worthwhile doing once, so we're certainly glad that we did it. Oh, absolutely. It's lovely and it's a great experience. And as I said, it's, you know, it's different, it's welcoming and it, you know, you get a sense of achievement at the end of it. Okay. We hope you've enjoyed this expectations versus reality. Uh, pretty much it did pan out how we thought. But as I said, the thing that really surprised us was the sand. Uh, that was a learning experience, but otherwise great. Okay, that's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. Uh, once we got into Bunsborough,